Hello world, and welcome back to Working Wisely. Today's guest is a PR manager. He is the PR manager at Get Your Guide, the travel platform based in Berlin that has now reached a valuation of over a billion dollars, making it a certified unicorn in the tech world. Um, Will is also a close friend. We spoke together about what it's like to work at Get Your Guide, but I think another thing very valuable was that we spoke for a long time about his transition from working in the hustle and bustle world of New York to the budding startup world of Berlin and how he sees the ups and downs of working in both. Most insightful about Will, from my point of view, is his ability to always reflect and analyze on himself in a fairly objective, uh, dispassionate way while still passionately pursuing the things he cares about. And all right, this is my conversation with Will. Will, thanks for joining me, my good friend. Pleasure. What's your favorite thing about currently working at Get Your Guide? <laughs> uh, if you're able to name that, I would be very impressed. Um, probably the favorite thing that I have about working at Get Your Guide uh, is just every day the chance to be completely involved in a project that might not have had much to do with the day before. Uh, we've gotten to be a pretty big company, but uh, even nowadays we find ourselves just pivoting a lot and addressing new problems as they come up, having fire drills just like the rest of them, uh, and uh, and yeah, uh, yeah, finding room for inspiration as well. So I think the diversity is kind of what keeps me going. Well, it seems like you guys kind of found your sweet spot because there's that kind of, you know, Euro unicorn moment that's a big deal now, right? Where the startup has the resources, but it's not a behemoth as of yet. Right. Where there's some there's some wiggle room to uh, try some new stuff, but there's also enough you know, backing that you're not fighting for your life every day. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Uh, especially this year was sort of uh, a turning point for us. I, I never felt at any moment, I've worked at Get Your Guide for almost three years now, Never felt at any moment that the company was strapped for cash or really at any risk of uh, of going under, or having to dramatically change its direction. But especially this year, we have a bit more of a war chest than usual, having raised almost five hundred million dollars in May uh, and achieving unicorn status for the first time. But uh, the truth is that we still have sort of a learning culture where um, you know we are open about the fact that we don't know everything about our uh, our own marketplace, our own uh, industry. So uh, the founders really preach kind of learning every day and not taking anything for granted. For those of you who've never had any avocado toast in your life, a unicorn is a unit in measuring uh, startups, typically tech-related, where they are valued at over $1 billion. Or in your case, I think it's euros, correct? Uh, both are true. Both are true. Well, that's even better. What do you think in terms of values, uh, like sets get your guide um, apart from from previous places you worked? I don't mean in a positive way or a negative way, just just broadly. Yeah, yeah. So I can only speak to my own experience, um, but for me, what makes values kind of stick a little bit more and are a little bit more believable, make them a little bit more believable, is that um, the values don't necessarily need to be like overwhelmingly. Okay, because I really want to hit on that because I, I think there is a cliche I'd like to tackle in the in the world where there's this sort of we're all perky and motivated and stoked and happy yeah. and there's plants in our office. And what do you find are, are not shallow about like the values of where you currently work? I mean, mm, yeah. So I think what is very real and what isn't shallow is our ability to admit failure. Um, I think an ability to admit failure and an ability to admit room for growth and I could do better next time and we didn't do well at this 
that is one of the most humbling parts of working at Get Your Guide. So um, I think one of the uh, one of the least encouraging things about some of the cultures that I worked in in New York City were that they were sort of a uh, scorch the ocean type culture where we just the ocean. We just sort of said, yeah, we can do anything and we'll just kind of cover all the ground. And we, I worked for agencies that, uh, that had corporate clients and represented them in the press. And, uh, you know, we'd sort of do whatever they asked. And, uh, and even if the challenge was almost impossible or even if we were really bite, biting off more than we could chew, we would just say, yeah, well, just, you know, we'll get it done. And failure was viewed as some sort of lack of commitment or lack of ability to be productive in a way. Whereas at Get Your Guide, one of the most refreshing things about working there is, uh, sort of like a, I would say like a, uh, a humanity or a humility about um, just knowing what you didn't get done, knowing what there wasn't time for and saying you prioritized well and that some goals just didn't even get started. And if they didn't get started, they must not have been important. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. I mean, would you say, I don't know. I mean, the fear of failure is a thing and I've heard it from both sides of the ocean. I mean, um, we're in Berlin and I've heard many Germans say that like German business culture is afraid of failure. And then the American business culture is the one that is so risk-taking and gung-ho. But then, then you talk to people from like uh, different parts of the U.S. and they go, oh, yeah, well, the U.S. business culture is afraid of failure. And it's really only in, you know, cool cosmopolitan cities with, you know, a, a budding startup scene that you can really try stuff. I mean, it seems like everybody has a different definition for like what a, what a failure to take risks looks like and what a failure to fail looks like yeah yeah no i think it's an interesting point i think uh it's a good distinction to make because there's sort of um failure that's attributed to a person and failure that's attributed to business and i think in germany failure that's attributed to a business is um almost not as permissible uh whereas failure to a person failure attributed to a person um it's like okay dust yourself off and try again Whereas in the U.S. we sort of have this culture of like, oh, it's okay, you know, everyone's just trying to be the best that they can be, and they're just trying to be these, uh, you know, Mister Positive or Mrs. Positive, uh, you know, values forward people. But uh, if your business fails, you know, cutthroat capitalism, oh, well, you must not have been good enough. Uh, so there's kind of a bit of a contradiction there. Okay, that that makes sense. So then, I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit about what you were doing when you were living in. The way I, because I know you, the way I see your career path, it's that there's the Manhattan chapter, mm. the Brooklyn chapter, and the Berlin chapter. <laughs> so can, should we, can we do like a, a quick overview of starting in Manhattan and then, yeah. Yeah, ending in, yeah, ending yeah in, sure. Uh, so uh, we, can, uh, we can start at the beginning, uh, chapter one, page one. Um, I just moved to New York City after finishing up my studies. Uh, I've got a bachelor's degree from George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and um Headed up to New York City to just basically try to have a job and get things started. And I'd managed to line something up uh, before I graduated, which was just the biggest, the biggest relief, sort of like the, the American dream of nowadays anyway. Try to graduate without uh, being totally, totally lost. Um, yeah, and I moved to, uh, moved to Manhattan in 2013. Um, got a dirt cheap apartment on the west side in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen, which uh, came and visited me in that apartment a couple times. Yes. Um, <laughs> Will taught me, that was that was 2013, Will taught me what Uber was when I couldn't get a cab. <laughs> I guess I was, uh, you reminded me of that recently. I guess I was an early adopter. I don't I don't remember that. Will was an early adopter, I, for sure. I don't know. I should have <laughs> bought stock while I had the chance. But, um, yeah, uh, I moved there and I started uh, in technology PR, which probably is worth defining. So what exactly does it mean when you say you do technology PR? People sort of say, okay, I think I know what that is, but they blink a little bit. 
So technology PR is essentially communicating about the growth, uh, vision, and um, unique angles of different technology companies to the media. Um, if you are someone who works in technology or someone who sort of works in, I guess, digital business more broadly, you might know some of the kind of cornerstone publications being TechCrunch, being VentureBeat, being sort of the tech section of the New York Times, if you can be so lucky. Uh, and the whole technology circuit that's built around, uh, you know, these sort of, um, I guess, uh, influence, uh, influence choosers uh, in the world of tech. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, there's hundreds and thousands of companies that are fighting for influence and fighting for some degree of recognition, authority, credibility in the world of technology. And our goal as their agency that represented them was day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, to find ways to get them uh, airspace on the technology wavelengths and to get, more importantly, others to sort of endorse them by speaking positively about them uh, in the third person. Um, now, were these others like um, limited journalists or what was it primarily focused on? Yeah, so we focus pretty closely on journalists. I think things have changed a little bit now in the agency world because, believe it or not, there's also sort of an uprising of influencers also who only focus on technology. I think we know of influencers as the uh, you know selfie-taking uh, travel Instagram people. But that's, the, that's like the most obvious version. It's the it's the it's the well known one. You could say it's the most successful one, but uh, maybe but there are uh, there are uh, technology influencers as well, and I think that's probably a part of the game now, where there's a little bit more paid for and bought influence. But back then, it was really just focusing on getting the tech cognoscenti, intelligentsia, whatever you want to call it. There've been a bunch of names thrown around to pay attention to you, um, and our goal was to basically tell them about our clients. Tell them why they should care and get them to include their include our clients in uh, in their stories. So um, it's pretty pretty cutthroat, pretty hard worlds to be in, especially if you don't know what you're doing and you're an entry level person. So I started with a couple of internships under my belt, but not a lot of experience in the tech industry. And um, yeah, just kind of cut my teeth at an agency called Hotwire PR, no relation to the travel company. Um, which was a London-based tech PR firm that was also just kind of trying to break into the U.S. Uh, and they had started a small San Francisco office and a small New York office. So they were looking for people, and I was looking for really anything. And uh, it was, uh, I don't know if it was a match made in heaven, but it was some kind of match. It was a match made in Manhattan. It was, it was a match made on LinkedIn. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and, and uh, it ended up working out. So they gave me my first gig, and things started from there. What did um, What did you, like feel about the first couple weeks there because i mean i think a lot of people have that instance where they prepare for something for a long time right and then the reality hits and they're not i mean we're used to dramatic examples where they were where people were super motivated or super disappointed but i think what's interesting about your case was it seems like it was a bit of both there were things you quite liked about 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 um getting started in a new city out of school and then there were things you also were like anybody, you're still hoping to figure out, if not in the first job, then the next one. Yeah. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to pursue? Or how long did it take when you were at Hotwire before you were um, thinking about, I don't know, other ways you could grow either there or somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think when I started, I was pretty pretty willing to just try to learn as much as I could and listen to everybody. And I... You know, they had, they were just getting started in, in, in the U.S. And at the time, I think they were really trying out a lot of things themselves and just seeing what stuck to the wall. But 
to me, they were all, uh, you know, they were all like gods and goddesses. They seemed to know everything about the media inside and out and had great connections. Um, and I just kind of tried to listen and learn for a while. I think my own, um, you know, my own hope was that I'd be able to translate my own um, articulation and, and writing ability into some kind of useful corporate asset where basically I could become, uh, if not a hired gun, at least a hired pen uh, that could express ideas that tech companies wanted to share in ways they were that were more elegant and concise and effective than what they themselves could think of. What were tech companies at that time bad at expressing where you found a kind of niche for yourself? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, at the time, I remember it being just kind of like the dawn of the sharing economy. So you mentioned Uber earlier, yeah. a prominent sharing economy example, but everything was sort of like somehow being pegged to the sharing economy. Airbnb. Airbnb. Uh, even sort of in the, uh, in, the, in the financial space, there were a lot of personal finance companies that were getting into the sharing economy for money, which is kind of weird if you think about it. And I don't think many of them are around anymore. Um, probably also like enterprise versions of the sharing economy, ways to share resources. Uh, that was big. I think also people didn't even really understand the cloud at that time, like just how much could be put into the cloud. So it's funny to look back. I'd love to read some of my old pitches to journalists because I'm sure at the time I thought they were just cutting edge pieces of, uh, you know, opinion and editorializing. But uh, looking at them now, I think they'd probably be a little dated. Well, folks, at the time, if you are you know over the age of 35 or under the age of 18, you should know that at that time, uh, millennial people were being made fun of for living in their parents' basements while, while Will was cutting his teeth um, in PR. And uh, if there's one thing that was consistent with the sharing economy, it was, it was trying to sell it as something that wasn't um, a massive crutch for, for, for indebted youth. Am I right? Yeah. No, I think it's true. Uh, I think uh, I think sharing sounded pretty good to most people at that moment. Uh, everyone was just trying to get jobs, and the, the recession was, uh, was was just about over at that time. I mean, 2013, people still said, we think we're still in the recession, 2007. Um, Certainly is, in certain certain segments. I mean, but yeah. I mean, that you that's what's interesting about this time is you're, you're, you're interacting with journalists, these people at the at the dawn of this kind of poignant tech terminology coming out, like the sharing economy. Nobody talked about the sharing economy in 2009. No, no. No, I mean, it was was before you could sort of say technology culture became, uh, you know... Ubiquitous? Ubiquitous or turned into a Hollywood export. Uh, The TV show Silicon Valley hadn't aired on HBO yet. There was no Ehrlich Bachman. There was no... Oh, there was There was no Pied Piper. Uh, There was none of that. And this sort of world of tech was a little bit still... uh, I'd say uh, not very tangible to people and a little bit hard to grasp, like how exactly can it be that something is in the cloud? And nowadays we, I don't know if we understand it that much more, but maybe we're just resigned to the fact that we will never will. And, uh, and we kind of go along with our days. I have a question. I mean, not that anybody really knows because it's just a popular term now, but does a term like sharing economy, does that first have its uh, take form in a, in a newspaper office or a PR office? PR office, no doubt. So I've been in so many meetings where people have attempted to coin either a variant of a currently in vogue term like the sharing economy or who have tried to come up with complete new ones. And oftentimes it's the stuff of pitches to clients when we would say, hey, we're going to make you famous or we're going to give you some credibility. We're going to invent this new category for you. We're going to invent this whole new paradigm or way of thinking about what it is that you do. 
And, uh, you know, 99% of the time, well, probably about 50% of the time it works and you win the client and then it doesn't work at all in the media and you get fired. The other 50% of the time it never worked at all. And maybe one, one in a hundred, like truly sticks and gets a little bit of traction. So, okay. So it's kind of just, you know, throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks, but you know, there's not enough time to throw everything. So you got to decide well what you throw, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can definitely tell you that journalists don't sit around all day and try to think of flippant um, phrase, ways to characterize what it is they're writing about. They have those kinds of phrases force fed to them by PR people who essentially ambush their inboxes day in and day out and hit them with an avalanche of jargon and invented terms. And uh, only the uh, only the very strongest survive. I guess it's a bit Darwinian in that sense. Yeah, I remember I, I in, a, in another lifetime I was I was uh, doing some part time editing work for a digital publication. And, right, uh, right. I remember that. Yeah, and it was uh, yeah, it was a good one. It had a niche. It wasn't it wasn't gigantic, and even they got hundreds if not thousands of emails a week from PR people going out just just thought you might be interested in knowing uh this is coming out yeah know? yeah yeah you know we think was... your audience might love this <laughs> yeah you know i've i've been reading articles of xx publication blank and i'd love to share with you just a few thoughts i had as i was reading it it's like okay guys like no who who is really writing in like this just um, casually bemused and interested reader that's not fooling anybody <laughs> Okay, so okay, so that's that's the Manhattan chapter. All right, so yeah, now, so yeah. what 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 got you to Brooklyn, both psychologically and professionally? Yeah, so uh, in between the Manhattan chapter and the Brooklyn chapter, there was a uh, actually very brief Germany interlude. Uh, you know, this company that I was working for at first, as I mentioned, uh, was a mostly European focused PR agency, mm-hmm. which Sweet. puts an odd kind of you know sort of full circle about you ending up in Europe for your PR career now. It does. I've been kind of running concentric circles around this whole topic for <laughs> most of my life, but uh, but it's true that uh, that the Germany visit was sort of a prelude to something later. Uh, it's a complex plot, I would say. But um, but I, I came and paid a visit to Germany in March of 2015 when I was still at my first job. They had offered me the opportunity to participate in a bit of an exchange program where I came over and learned about basically how PR works in Europe and saw how my colleagues in uh, Munich and Frankfurt were doing the same thing I've been doing in New York, learning from junior and senior people just over here in Germany. Um, it was a great trip. I, uh, I saw you at the end. We uh, we spent some time in Berlin together. It was uh, pretty fun. I don't remember a lot of it, but it was, uh, it was a I good remember time. everything. Oh, good. Uh, that's, that's good. It's going to come up at my wedding, I'm sure. But Only uh, if I'm invited. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I think you're invited. But... Um, but uh, yeah, I had this sort of visit to visit to Europe and uh, came back, and you know, that that trip was sort of one of the best things that my my employer could offer me. So, being quite quite honest, I said, "All right, well, I, I got that out of them. What's what can I do next?" Uh, Which and, lines up well with 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 the with the New York every man for himself thing, right? You know? A little bit, a little bit. That taught uh, you some I, good things, I think. Yeah, somehow at age twenty three, I already had a little bit of a uh, "what's in it for me" type attitude. Well, so. you know, fair enough, man. College is expensive in the U.S. I mean, we got we we'd be naive not to have a little bit of that. Yeah, better better have some good shit coming afterward. But uh, but I I uh, came back to New York, took a look at my life, took a look at what I wanted to do. And um, I realized that I wanted to get a little bit more into a certain kind of technology, a certain kind of storytelling. Get your niche. Um, yeah, uh, get get a bit of a niche going, and 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 really become uh, become specialized. Which, in retrospect, I think was probably a little bit premature. Like I'd still only been having a career for about. 
two years, but at that time, I thought I was doing pretty well, and I, I was like, all right, well, it's time for me to really, um, you know, hone in on my my uh, my abilities, and I think that was uh, probably a little much. If I could go back and tell my twenty three year old self something, it'd probably be, all right, man, chill out a little bit. But yeah, man, but uh, that's that's fair. I mean, who doesn't tell the twenty three year old self to be more patient? Yeah, right, and to think less highly of themselves. It's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow. But um, yeah, I started looking for uh, for some new jobs. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I looked for, uh, looked for a new gig in, um, in, in PR, uh, looking for a certain thing, got in touch with a company called the Bateman Group, uh, which are sort of a specialized tech PR agency based in San Francisco and Dumbo, Brooklyn, uh, and had a couple of good conversations with them and, and thought that would kind of be the place for me. So. Okay. So you, you moved professionally to Brooklyn and then you also physically moved to Brooklyn. I don't know if that's just because the yeah. L train is, is not ideal at this, uh, in this decade. Or, or whether it's, uh, or whether it's because you were also looking for a change in perspective or just random great coincidence? No, I was, you know, I, I was looking for, I think at that time, like a little bit of a, a shakeup in my life in general. Um, and I, uh, I was thinking a lot about, um, yeah, how could I just add a little bit more sort of like chance and serendipity to my life at that moment? I sort of wanted to up the stakes on predictability, um, wanted to, uh, find more moments to just, meet people where I thought maybe my, my 20s would take off in an exciting direction. I think I felt a little bit stuck. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I, I moved to, uh, to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which, by the way, people think of Brooklyn as this sort of like um, very uh, homogenized, geographically close together area where everyone is walking French bulldogs and eating avocado toast and uh, just you know, running into Lena Dunham all the time. And I'd like to point out, by the way, that Brooklyn is the uh, largest borough of New York City. And to get from one side of Brooklyn to the other side, even just taking the subway, would probably take about two hours. So, I was I was reading that if Brooklyn was its own city, it would be I think what like the third or fourth largest city in the United States. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's like just, four million or something. Yeah, it's just behind Chicago in terms of size. So it's uh, it's wow. huge. it's enormous. And uh, and and uh, what we know of Brooklyn um, in pop culture is like maybe less than 10% of Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, okay, so that, that, cover, that covers the, the lifestyle change, the location change in terms of the topography of the ever-oscillating thing we call New York City. Yeah. What was different about the job? Did you find better mentors there than the previous job? I mean, not better, but did you find a, a, another vein of PR that, that excited you? What was, what, was, what was different about the second job in Brooklyn compared to the one in uh, Manhattan? Yeah, good question. So the the difference, the main difference was it felt like we were no longer with the clients that we were serving at my second job at the PR agency, the Bateman Group. We weren't clawing for every last name check that we could get out of sort of the media or the press or the influential people, whatever you want to call it. And we we certainly weren't charging our clients by that way either. Um, we were less concerned with sort of just. Uh, constantly waving our hands and splashing around and saying, hey, look, here we are. Uh, and we were a little bit more concerned with getting very, very good opportunities to be able to say exactly what we did in extremely impactful ways. Um, that is on behalf of our clients. And that was kind of a little bit more exciting because I felt like I wasn't coming into work every day saying, let me email 100 journalists and just try to get their attention with my wordsmithing skills. I came into work and I was sort of working with people who seemed to really have time and space to take a thoughtful approach to uh, getting the media to, t- to pay attention to you. 
Um, and it was a wholly different way of working. It was a wholly different sort of like approach to productivity. Um, and I learned, I learned a lot there. Uh, I definitely respected the people that I worked with there a lot. Um, and that made, that made my, my job easier knowing that the people who had their hands on the rudders of the, uh, of the company really knew exactly what they were doing. Okay, cool. I mean, that's, that's a good segue because, okay, I'm, I'm getting an image now. So there's, there's first sort of this hustle heavy aspect to the first job because yeah. it, it is your first job. So there's already that part, but then there's the second part where you're dealing with this UK firm, which is getting their feet on the ground in, in, uh, in Europe, right? I mean, sorry, in, 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 uh, North America. Correct. And so you, the environment is all about, uh, you know, yeah, taking root somewhere new and, and clawing out your, your space in a new, very competitive environment. Then you, you know, you, you demonstrate some competency there. You develop some interests. You build a, yeah, a repertoire, if I can say that. And then, and then you end up at the, the second job where there's there's still obviously a certain base level of competition, but now there's there's more of a focus on um, doing good quality work in a specific niche because you, you're you're with some some locals now who, who who know who know the roads so to speak. So then now you can zero in on maybe something a little more about. It seems like it's more about the the content than the client in some way. As in, as in the, the client is more certain, therefore there's more time to focus on the content of your writing, the content of your ideas. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. I think my first gig, it felt like we were paid to get people's names out there. And my second gig, it felt like we were paid to get people's message across. Which feels and, better. Well, uh, maybe it, both in different ways. Depends. It depends what you like to do. I think for some people, I think the messaging can be a little bit intimidating. Where essentially in PR, at least the kind of PR that I was doing at the Vaping Group, you're essentially trying your very hardest to get someone else to use your words, and that is kind of the art of PR when you can sort of sell a journalist on an idea to the extent that what you want to be out there is not something you say yourself, but something that is said about you. Uh, and that was, I can definitely say, an, an intellectually stimulating challenge where we pushed one another very hard, not only on um, levels of you know promotion and how to be persuasive, but also levels of argumentation. Did we consider this enough? Did we really sort of fine-tune the finer points so that journalists wouldn't say, okay, this is just some spin, right, that's being put on this idea by some person who's been highly paid? But they say, oh, you know what? This is actually a really thoughtful way to look at this, and I don't have time in my day to give things this kind of thought. But clearly this company's thought about sort of this notion or concept or paradigm or advancement in technology to an extent that I haven't. And they've reasoned it out in such a way that's smart enough that I just trust it. Uh, and that was hard and, and, and satisfying. I mean, and was that, did you, because let's, let's, um, okay, typically one might make a cynical approach about spinning something, but let's, let's try and go the sentimental route or the, or the, the more open route here. It's less, less discussed in this context, but I mean, would you, would you say that to do that well, I mean, maybe one doesn't, maybe the one would assume you'd have to be dishonest, but would you, I kind of feel like perhaps someone can do a better job if they're if they're honest, but still pick the right parts to emphasize about a certain certain industry or topic. No, I think that's true. Um, 
I can say, hand to God, that I've never lied to try to get a journalist's attention. I've never been directed to lie and say, oh, yeah, just say it's that and they'll get it. Say it's the sharing economy and they'll get it. Uh, I've, I've never done that because ultimately it doesn't help the person that you're trying to represent. Uh, if, you know, Maybe they can get away with it for a little bit. But um, once it all comes crashing down, you, know, you, you didn't help them at all if you didn't get sort of the right idea out there in the first place. I do think that there is an art that both journalists and PR people practice to selectively identify parts of a story that are meaningful for an audience or for readers and turning up the volume on those and turning down the volume on others. It's not unlike editing a podcast where you want to try to pull out the beeps and clicks and feedback and just sort of highlight the parts that sound good. Um, where you haven't necessarily cut or edited anything. You've just sort of turned down the levels on certain parts and turned up the levels on others, like sort of mixing the story a little bit. Yeah, as someone that is still getting better at editing podcasts, I, I, am, <laughs> I am inclined to agree with that metaphor. Okay, so I'm, that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at it. So, I mean, it seems there was a rewarding part of how cerebral this other job was because you got to focus on not just... Um, testing and putting out a, uh, a product or a company, but actually a narrative that could apply to a great many companies or even in like entire industries. And then, then there's, a, there's a great macro uh, exercise going on to, to say something that depicts the truth with the right balance of being compelling and uh, content rich, if I can say that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's true. Uh, I think we were really you know focused on making sure that whatever we said actually provided some kind of value beyond just the name check. Because, you know, one of the, one of the fallacies of doing public relations is that if you can get your client mentioned, you did it. You did sort of the thing that is the gold standard. But truthfully, if you get an irrelevant mention or you get sort of a, uh, a name check where an expert is quoted on something that doesn't really relate to what they do, doesn't really help. I mean, we all read the news and we all see those quotes and we sort of just gloss over them or, you know, we don't catch, it doesn't catch our eyes, you know, whoever was, whoever was quoted being an expert on, on, on what have you. And I think the real art that I learned there was sort of getting the sentence uh, from the journalist that correctly put the company in the context of the topic rather than just, you know, well, I have an expert who can speak to the sharing economy or can speak to the cloud, and let's just, you know, get in on the dog pile of all the others because that, that's not helping anybody. If, if you're trying to put forth the best way of articulating what, frankly, is the right truth to know about a company or an industry, how do you deal with the backlash of, uh, yeah, like, you know, the same media environment that leads to... Uh, yeah, all the crazy stuff I don't have to mention that's on the internet right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty big can of worms to open up. What is true and what is the right opinion about things and which one is a fact and which one is just opinion or fake news, uh, I, think, uh, I think gets us into pretty heady waters as far as um, figuring out how to believe the media. Um, yeah, and I don't want to go down the whole route of conspiracy and media. I just want to say that what's interesting about what you're saying is that you know a good PR person, when they're doing their job well and thoughtfully, is actually telling the truth and making themselves understandable to, to the right people in the right place at the right time. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, I think that's the right, the right notion to have. I think, uh, a lot of people view PR as this sort of art of lying or dark art. I've heard it called a million things, the art of influence. And, um, I don't think any of those are necessarily really directly true. I think what is directly true is that in many ways, PR is a service industry that is focused on improving journalism or that is its best purpose. And if PR people focus on improving journalism and they do, they sort of target their entire, uh, you know, accounts they have with clients and their entire strategies that they have with talking to journalists toward attempting to just make stories better, more complete, more interesting, more colorful, then that is sort of what PR people can offer to the world to try to make it a little bit better. Beyond that, um, yeah, I don't know what is. I don't know what is beyond that. I think there. I think there is a. I think there is a bit of a uh, an important um, navigation or balancing act that press people, public relations people, have to uh, contend with. The way that I've explained it to people before is that if you look at marketing teams, if you look at marketing uh, organizations, you know they have a way of working and they have a common goal. And they have a set of objectives that usually involve um, selling more, signing up more, um, you know, um, whatever, uh, downloading more, uh, whatever they want to kind of get across, clicking more. And then you have the press and they have a different set of objectives, which is usually around telling the truth, getting clicks, beating your own competition, getting more readers, making their ad dollars more sort of profitable, um, and the best PR people realize that they are in the middle of a tug of war between a marketing team that wants to push more product and a journalistic team that probably wants to receive more page views. And if you can figure out how to kind of contend with those natural dynamics, then you're going to be a, a good PR person that isn't going to get steamrolled by the marketing team. And that is such a good message because I think especially nowadays you get so many people that push this whole narrative of um – the corruption of institutions, which I'm not saying does not exist. The world's always falling apart in one form or another. But I think what's what's valuable about what you're saying is, you know, if it's easy to look at what doesn't work about something and, and act like you're above it, but it's a lot harder to look at the uh, diverging incentives of different institutions, some of which pay your bills, some of which are important to keeping democracy alive, some of which do a little bit of both, and try and find a way that both of factions can win enough to create something um, both coherent and compelling, right? I mean, I don't know. I think that's that's a noble pursuit in some ways. Like, yeah, you could argue that PR and its lowest aspiration is cynical spin, sure. I think we all already knew that, you know. You don't have to hear about that from me. But then I guess what's interesting to hear from you is PR at its highest aspiration is um, a depiction of a company or service or economic development um, that is so good that basically nothing could replace it but the truth. And and basically the best depiction of the truth is, is, is the highest pursuit of PR. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Uh, well, I'm inclined to say it's true because it sounds pretty it's, good. It's true enough for you and you're here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm here. And let me say one more thing about the truth, by the way, because we were talking about PR. So uh, I don't think that the best PR people tell half-truths. I don't think the best PR people try to sort of somehow distort or warp reality. But I definitely will say that I think the best PR people know how to hedge their bets pretty well. 
Uh, I think that that's an important that's an important skill. I think that knowing how to kind of not make sure you put all of the eggs in your client's basket or in the media's basket uh, is is a useful sort of general um, productivity and career skill to learn. And I think that not enough industries really teach that. I think there are a lot more industries out there that are a little bit more dogmatic, that are a little bit more sort of black or white in terms of uh, in terms of belief, in terms of ideology. And the one kind of interesting thing I would say about working with good PR people, and maybe you know, for anyone listening to this, they should think about it the next time they talk to a PR person. Um, try to figure out whose camp they're really in or whose pocket they're really in, because my bet is they're not in anyone's pocket; they're in their own. I think that's a good point. And like, as we all know, as everybody who has Netflix knows now, that you know, if if you just lie, you don't get a a written enriching career forever. You get Fire Festival. So I mean, you know, at some point. At some point, the lack of substance shows itself. Okay, so um, without going too far down the, the PR truth rabbit hole, of which we could do for hours. We could. Um, now we're on chapter three, right? Now we're on Berlin. We're on Get Your Guide. This seems to be, like at least at this stage, like a perfect union of, of talents you picked up from the other two uh, two spots you're at, right? You've, you've got the... Uh, Kind of got the, you got a little bit of a corporate European structure that you came to understand from your visits to Germany and your time at Hotwire, and then and then when you moved to Brooklyn, you've got some ideas about not just not just like getting that that story and getting that client, and you know, but also having the poise to kind of you know duck and weave a bit to get to make the right calculated um, arrangement of words um, for the right people in the right ethical and and intellectually sound way, and then and then. Um, Okay, so then 2017, you, you come to Berlin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so I came to Berlin in May of 2017, and uh, I guess it's true that it was kind of something that I'd been building up toward for a while uh, with my first two jobs. But in a lot of other ways, it was kind of just a crazy departure. Uh, it was uh, sort of my, my next trick, uh, my next disappearing act. Um, I, uh, I, I had... Uh, learned a lot of the Babin Group. I had been kind of um, getting better and better and honing my skills and things had been going well. But I think on a really personal level, I started to look for just a little bit more adventure in my life. You know, my again, my experiment in Brooklyn um, worked out well in that apartment that I lived in. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I met friends for life who were my roommates. I also met some people who I didn't like at all, but that's also good. Uh, that, that happens anyway. It does. Everybody's got shitty roommates, and it's part of the story. But uh, yeah, I met a couple people. I kicked someone out of my apartment once, uh, which is not a story I'll tell now, but uh, it had to happen. I was looking for a change, and I started to look around and try to think about what could I really do next that would be an even broader expansion of what I'd developed so far. I was feeling, again, pretty good in my career, feeling like I'd made it pretty far. And I wanted to sort of roll the dice and do something that I could only do at that time. And I always had the dream of having part of my career be in Europe before I was 30. At the time, I was 25, and I was kind of feeling on top of the world with the Bateman Group and things have been going well. And I sort of said to myself, well, why not now? Why not just go for, uh, go for that life goal now and check the box? Uh, so I started a bit of a Sunday cafe project, just kind of looking around, seeing if I could figure out a way to find a company that would move me to Europe. I interviewed for a lot of jobs in London. I don't know if you remember that, but I was thinking about London. Yeah, that was a, t- uh, that was a time when London was definitely in Europe. That was a time, that's right. That was a time when London was a European place. Uh, now, who knows? But, uh, but 
uh, I looked for a lot of jobs there and um, none of them worked out. Uh, I don't want my career to sound like this kind of effortless glide through all these cool things because it definitely hasn't been. Uh, I, I looked for a job in London for a long time. I didn't want to come back to Berlin because you and I had had our, our, our university studies here. And I sort of thought, eh, I already done that. I don't really want to repeat myself. I want to add a new chapter to the story. You were not looking for an extension of college, that's for sure. No, no, not at all. And uh, and I was looking for the next thing, and none of the things in London worked out even at all. And I had good connections, and I got you know recommended and referred, and all the things you would want for some cool jobs. Uh, and, and and none of it panned out. So I, uh, I I sort of went back to the drawing board, and I thought, all right, well, where can I kind of make an impact? And I decided to look a little bit into some jobs in Berlin. Um, and through random chance, uh, actually an old coworker of mine from Hotwire had posted on Facebook. Uh, she said, Hey, I'm working with this company that's based in Berlin. Uh, does anyone know any PR people that are in Berlin? Um, and I saw the post and I dropped her an email and I said, Hey, you know, it's me. It's been a while. Hope, hope all's well. I saw your Facebook post. Um, I, uh, I, I'm interested in what this job might be. Um, I'm not in Berlin, but I could be in Berlin, and uh, I want to hear more. Uh, like, what's the gig? And she wrote back to me, and she said in, in a very uh, thoughtful way, "Oh yeah, you you really like German, right?" And I was like, <laughs> uh, "Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I really like German. Uh, that's true, because uh, I, you know, you and I had studied German, um, and uh, and she knew me as the German guy." Or the German fan. To be so, fair, not a lot of Americans study German, and um, no. Will and I were were in a, I guess in a in a, in a niche at that time. Twenty year olds uh, studying German in Germany, our third year of college. No, there was uh, yeah. Before it was cool, uh, we were we were the few, the proud, uh, actually giving a serious crack at studying advanced German. Uh, but anyway, um, so I so she said, oh yeah, maybe this could work. You know, it's a company in the travel industry. It's a digital company. Um, you know, they just raised their Series C round. So at that point, I think their their most recent round had been fifty million uh, euros, which is no small uh, no small penny. And um, and uh, pretty much the next day at seven a.m., I found myself on an overseas Skype call with the co-founder, who was very caffeinated and I think at lunch at the moment. And I had just about poured some cold brew on my head to try to wake up uh, and get ready for some kind of interview. And um, chatted to him for a while and uh, and just kind of got the ball rolling. And um, yeah, a couple of interviews later, uh, a couple a uh, couple more conversations, and um, they said, "Hey, you want to want to move to Berlin? Here's a plane ticket." Um, and I decided to take it. So that's pretty good. Okay, so I want to know the, what was the motivation? I mean, I know I studied with you in Germany. We we lived there. We moved back to the states. We finished school. We both moved back. But what I'm interested in is. As this growing need to progress in your career gets more intense, it also seems accompanied by this this general desire to create maybe chaos is too 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 broad a word, but some some variability or some unpredictability um, to accompany it. Right, this seems like a, a consistent theme in, in at least how you've talked about your life and your career so far. Is there's two parts. There's the there's the 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 growth in what you're doing, getting better at something, getting smarter, working harder, sure. But then to counterbalance that, there seems to be kind of like a more, I don't know, a, a more, I don't want to say a more human component, maybe a more, a more uh, pleasantly irrational component to just kind of, you know, 
play a little roulette and explore a little bit. I mean, what do you do? You, do you see those things as two different parts of of yourself? Are they you know two sides of the same coin? How do you do? You think they're related at all? Do they feed on each other? Or am I just making a broad, horrendous generalization? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I think they definitely do. Uh, I think they definitely do relate. I think they definitely do feed on each other. So uh, the way that I thought about it at the time was, um, you know, things were going well at work. And uh, had I just been interested in climbing the ladder that I was on and increasing my, my earnings, increasing uh, my authority and everything else in a sort of linear way, um, I, had no, I had no problems. Um, but uh, at the same time, I looked at sort of the next rungs on the ladder and I thought, I don't know if that's exactly where I want to be going. Uh, you know, staying in New York or staying with the company and just sort of progressing linearly along this track didn't sound like the way that I could flesh out my resume in the most exciting way or beyond that, the way that I could flesh out my life in the most exciting way. So I think there's a bit of a, I think there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a casino, a casino component to it where, um, you know, when you're, when you're up at the casino and I don't gamble by the way, but when you're up at the casino, uh, you're feeling pretty good. You're thinking, yeah, I'm going to, I'm ready to double down. I'm ready to go, you know, all in on this round. You know, I, I can't lose like, it's my night, like, you know, the dealer's got my number, like, let's do this. And I felt like at that moment that I had, I was holding some pretty good cards. Um, and I think when you feel like you're holding good cards, you're willing to make riskier bets. And, uh, and, and so I did. Um, and, you know, I, I made this bet not just sort of like incredibly spontaneously. I made it after speaking to people in my life who were important, my parents and everybody, and, uh, and they said, yeah, you only get one shot at this kind of thing. You should really take these chances when they, when they show up. Um, I remember someone who is kind of an unofficial mentor to me, um, guy who runs a marketing agency in, uh, in New York. And I never worked for him or with him or anything at all, but I just happened to get to know him. Um, he, he told me, uh, you know, you only get a couple times in your life to strap yourself to the rocket ship and see where it goes. And um, I, it sounded dramatic at the moment. But um, looking back on it now, it uh, feels like I was uh, sort of strapping myself to a rocket ship and uh, flying off somewhere. And uh, it still feels like that a little bit today. So um, I, try to think about, I try to think about those choices like those moments where um, if you look back in 10 years, you look back in 20 years, I think that's what really scared me was feeling like I would wake up one day in New York City and be you know, nearing 40, nearing 50, um, and look back at how I spent my time and just say, did I take all the chances that were afforded to me? Um, where did the time go? Uh, what have I been doing? Um, I had my eyes closed for the past two or three decades and, uh, all of a sudden here I am. And I was really determined not to have that happen one way or another. I was going to make things more exciting. So, uh, that was kind of what, you know, even after I had the job offer from Get Your Guide, that was what pushed me over the edge was the feeling that. If nothing else, if it all crashes and burns, at least this is going to be a pretty good story that I can tell later. And as a PR guy, you love a good story. I do love a good story, and I think about my own story from time to time, not in a uh, editorializing or biographical way, but just kind of like living your life as if you are sort of your own hero in a in a hero's narrative. I think is kind of a good way to go to recognize conflict when it arrives. Uh, to recognize rising tension when it arrives and to know how to kind of capitalize on big plot twists is uh, an important thing. What's been uh, the most rewarding thing since you moved back here? I mean, because uh, you're hardly the how did you move to Berlin uh, archetype in terms of people who move here. You'd lived here before. Uh, you weren't seeking uh, kind of some sort of 
bohemian ripoff of the 90s. Uh, you didn't come solely for career, although career was important. I mean, it was a balanced choice. Like, what's, what, what have you enjoyed the most since you got back, either professionally or personally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think what I've enjoyed more than anything has been the feeling that every day is kind of like my most surprising and uh, unusual days that I ever had in New York City, where meeting someone new or being out with a group of people you don't know that well, or um, you know, just sort of um, embracing the strange in general is a daily occurrence as an expat where you sort of just become okay with the fact that you don't know the people you're surrounded with that well. You may not even know where they're from or sort of anything about their backgrounds. And I think that where I come from, even though New York's a big place too, people were rather insular and I think rather um, cautious about letting uh, strangers into their lives for fear of who knows what. But what I like about living here and what sort of satisfies me endlessly is the feeling that every day could be sort of a complete plot twist or a complete change in where things are going. And, uh, and, and uh, that's one thing that I definitely don't get bored of. And that's one part of my story that I don't really want to change too soon. Does that help you do better work? I think so. I think it really does. I mean, most of the time, obviously. <laughs> uh, most of the time. Uh, I think it does help me do better work. I think... It helps me do better work because it helps me remove myself or the perception that I have, the counterpart that I'm dealing with from anything going on at work. Um, and that doesn't mean I can't have a relationship with people, but I think it does mean that you become more okay with not needing to have all the facts about somebody that you're dealing with uh, in order to do great work with them. And, uh, and, and, I think Get Your Guide reflects that. I think uh, it's a company where uh, people are from all over the world. There's about 600 people who work for Get Your Guide worldwide now, including almost 500 in Berlin. And there are people from, I think, over 55 countries is the latest stat. Uh, so if you work it out, there's like five people to a country or 10 people to a country or something like that. It's not like that, but uh, there's a lot of Americans, there's a lot of Germans, there's a lot of uh, Brits, French, Italian, but there are also people from just everywhere. Uh, and I think that that kind of natural diversity, you know, sometimes you go into a meeting with someone and not only do you not know them, you don't even, you can't even guess where they might be from. Uh, and that kind of makes things exciting because you don't even know what they can be bringing to the table. And if you can deal with that, it's pretty easy to deal with anything else. I can see why that's liberating too, because I want to throw in, I want to see what you think about this, but I feel like a German PR person from Berlin could suffer the similar problems and, and enjoy similar things about being in Berlin and then get a job in New York and enjoy what you're enjoying about Berlin in New York. The things about being from somewhere versus just being in a new place are, are real. And I think that it's also worth pointing out that part of what you're looking for, whether it had been here or in London or elsewhere, it's, it's a, uh, I think it's not just, um, being um where you are now but it's 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 really a situation over a location and, and that situation maybe couldn't have happened in a part of the world where you were already quite familiar I yeah think, i mean i think that's an, a very important part of the story is that um like i think new york has what, eight million people metro area 20 million and it's like 
I think there must be so many New Yorks, but at the same time, the one that will always be the most visible to you being from near New York is, is, is the one that, you know, is related to friends, family, school, and then like the things that got you your version of New York, the same way that, um, you know, you first look for London because, oh, Berlin's kind of covered territory because maybe I wasn't there long, but I have lived there, right? So you are looking for this, um, I think there's a curiosity to it too. I don't think it's, it's, um, it's just the desire to have random variability, but I think you want to discover stuff, man. I think that's an interesting thing. You can have people from all over the world, but there's, there's, uh, some people that are just, they're just, they want to discover stuff and, and that, uh, they get rewarded for it, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a pretty sound analysis. Uh, I think that my New York, when I lived there, was maybe four or 500 people at the most, even though the whole city's eight million. So it's kind of unknowable in a way. And as long as you're going along the premise of unknowability, at least my feeling is you might as well just really go for it. And, uh, and, and Berlin is a whole other level of, in some ways, unknowable and in other ways, kind of knowable. Because as long as you're comfortable with the fact that no one is from a similar background, no one knows one another that well, that you can kind of make it here as long as you learn to kind of grapple with those dynamics and learn how to deal with people that uh, are, not, uh, are not familiar with one another. And what I appreciate, tell me if I'm wrong, but <clears throat> if there's one thing I really like about here, um, which I think would not be true in New York or London to the same degree, is the markers of social class are a lot less apparent, you know, where in uh, maybe a lot of other more established job centers, you've got kind of business culture that people kind of recognize from, you know, um, Men's Warehouse or American Psycho or whatever, whatever your reference point is. Where, and I feel like here, very often, you know, the guy with the, the face tattoos and the pierced nose is, is the CEO. He could be. He could be. Uh, he might be the PR guy, but only if he does podcasts only where you don't see his face. Uh, yeah, but, we don't, yeah this, is all, this is all audio. You have no idea. Maybe Will has 5,000 piercings. You don't know. You don't know. I'm, I'm not doing broadcasts anytime soon, so, you know. Um, no, I think it's true. Uh, I think... I think What's interesting about Berlin is the sense that so few people are in this sort of rat race existence when it comes to their work and the way that they work, where there's just not a lot of people who are out there trying to do the business lunch routine, who are trying to do the, you know, uh, one-upmanship of, uh, of, of client service and of, uh, sort of, you know, um, being able to provide by being successful. And I think that that's refreshing because it sort of um, takes everyone's ego down a peg where there's none of this sort of conception that, you know, people can just throw cash around and, 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 and they're too good for things. I think what I like about living here is that it feels like there are very few people that I've worked with here who wouldn't be willing to, um, you know, catch a quick beer after working in a dive bar or even just sit outside. Uh, or, or um, you know, have a meal of cheap and delicious Turkish food like you can get right here in Kreuzberg where we're sitting. Um, I think that there is uh, something kind of nice about that where it's the great equalizer, where if nothing is incredibly expensive or few things around are incredibly expensive, no one really has much of an opportunity to flaunt wealth, and everyone is forced to not use money as a differentiator for their own personal lives. And... I like that. Uh, I like that. I live in a place where people uh, treat one another um, like they're on the same level all the time, and beyond that, they rarely even ask each other what they do. Uh, and I think that's kind of 
the most refreshing thing. I think uh, that is true about here. People do not ask as much about what you do as they do elsewhere. No, it's rare. And even if they do ask about what you do, they're kind of looking for a quick, uh, a quick answer and just kind of a, a pulse check rather than to you know really get something going. It's not so they can um, find out who they should really be talking to. That's true. They're not trying to sort of cycle through the room until they reach the relevant stakeholder that will be able to, uh, you know, satisfy their corporate ambitions. I don't think that's uh, the way that things work here because, uh, yeah, thankfully those people just aren't, aren't here. Um, but I can definitely say that when I lived in New York, uh, there were so many times when I felt like I was at an event where people just felt the need to talk about work in a way that didn't leave any room for real discussion, but was more of a sort of like self-validation exercise. But they didn't ask about how do you work or why do you like work or what, you know, what makes work satisfying. It was more of a gut check on, oh yeah, do you work a lot? Do you work really hard? Do you work in a way that is impressive? Do you make money from what you do? Uh, there, there wasn't really any discussion of... Sounds very intense. Yeah, and there was no discussion of why you spend your time doing these things. It was just more of a more of a measuring contest, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, is is that a survival technique in a uh, high population, economically saturated place? I mean, because I, I, I partly want to say that maybe it's the environment. I don't want to totally blame the great people in New York City. I'm, I'm obviously giving you a little bit of grief only because it's fun, and also because I don't know. I think maybe. The other thing about um, here is just that it hasn't, you know, half the city was communist until 30 years ago. Maybe, maybe, maybe a New York is, is, is doomed to come here through uh, investor capital and, uh, you know, English speaking weirdos like us talking about living here. Or, or maybe, maybe there is something uh, fundamentally different about the environment here that's going to create, uh, you know, a snowballing effect. And it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be that way. I mean, What's what's more likely? Do you th- do you think that um, startup land in Berlin that kind of sprung up in the last you know five to ten years, depending on who's measuring, is gonna is gonna take its own form? I feel like it has to. I used to think that I u- I really used to think that you know everywhere is is on, at a different stage of becoming uh, Palo Alto or San Francisco, and all these tech companies are gonna homogenize everything, but I don't know. The more I've spent time with uh, people working in tech in Europe versus people working in tech in California or, you know, North Germany versus South Germany. You can parcel up as much as you want. But I really do think that technology creates a lot of capability, but then it's really people's philosophy, their ethics and their interests and where their attention is that then ends up affecting the whole ecosystem. And there's a little push and pull that's money related that everybody is a little bit succumbing to. But I mean, you're the PR person. I mean, you know that like depending on how things are depicted or how things are where people's attention goes and how they recognize something relative to something else, uh, it can lead to choices in companies and entire cities and countries that are quite different. Yeah, yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's a tough thing that uh, that cities like Berlin are wrestling with. I personally believe that at some point, a city with as much economic opportunity as Berlin likely will be much more expensive in the future and likely will be uh, not as livable for the sort of communities and populations that lived here previously. But at the same time, thinking about the impact of technology on cities like Berlin, 
relative to the impact of other forces that also gentrify places and make them more unlivable? I have to say, I think, sure, uh, people who earn technology digital wages in Berlin make more than the people who made wages in Berlin 20 or 30 years ago by a, by a good amount. But the sheer number of like how many of those people are doing those jobs relative to the availability of apartments and just how much everyone's rent is going up makes me a little bit optimistic that even if tech maybe hasn't found its conscience with regard to gentrification um, globally, it at least doesn't have to bear the full brunt of its impact. And maybe San Francisco is a different story. I can definitely say from having been there many times that if you go to San Francisco, you recognize the wealth disparity on, on the street. Um, and, and you don't do that here in Berlin. You don't see sort of uh, you know, gleaming towers of mega unicorns with um, mega unicorns now that could be a new pr phrase ladies mega, and gentlemen yeah i 